entering the Freedom Hut. Federal judges are having a call because they're so concerned about Trump, it seems. We'll get into that. And also a reminder of what the Department of Justice was like under the Obama administration. Mike Bloomberg qualifies for the Nevada debate tomorrow. Who's funding the socialists? The answer may surprise you. And do long-term criminal offenders have different brain structures? Also, can food help battle depression? Stack show coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. If you look at Bill Barr and what he's done, and you you look at the fact that he has started a search and destroy mission against all of the president's political, perceived political opponents that the president concocted when he talked about Barack Obama tapping the phones at Trump Tower back in March of 2017. And he is chasing down every conspiracy theory that the president is putting forward. At the same time, and more disturbingly, Bill Barr is is providing aid and comfort to the president's allies. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. That was uh, Morning Joe, as uh, dishonest and and stupid as always on what's going on right now with the Department of Justice. They are all now switching from a narrative of the DOJ is sacrosanct. How dare anyone ever question its ability to be fair and impartial in highly political cases to now that you have an attorney general who understands what's really going on, who has not, because of public pressure, been sidelined, as was the case with Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Now that you have an attorney general in bar who wants to get answers, And these should be answers that everybody wants, right? Somehow this country has been lulled into a a false sense of normalcy when it comes to a two-plus-year-long investigation of a president, a sitting president, for betraying his country and cheating in an election and working with Russia to do so. And it was all a lie. Never happened. Didn't occur. A special counsel was convened to look into something that did not happen, that there was no evidence of happening, and that was all effectively a conspiracy theory. A conspiracy theory that overtook the media, that ran its way all the way up through the intelligence community and up the Department of Justice chain of command. And now some of us would like answers as to how something so colossally stupid and wrong and unfair could happen. And what are the what are the libs doing? And the libs and their lackeys, right? The libs and the people that do whatever they say for the right amount of pay in the libs employ, people like Joe Scarborough, among others. I don't know how Scarborough honestly gets up in the morning and does this. He's already plenty rich. He's married to a rich lady. They've got plenty of money. What's the problem? Why, why, why do the dance? Oh, that's right. It's personal. He was a big booster of Donald Trump's. He was a big fan of Trump's, as was Ms. Ms. Brzezinski, his now wife, after they left their respective families after hosting a show together for a while on TV. Uh, they, 
they have decided that now Trump is the enemy, and so they feed a left-wing audience at MSNBC a steady diet of Trump derangement syndrome gruel every morning. But they do it with this air of, oh, we're the cool kids. We're the cool kids. We have all the the really connected Wall Street insiders and CEOs come sit at our table and people from respected news outlets like the New Yorker and the New York Times, they'll sit with us too. And the show is an intellectual abomination. I mean, just start with that. But this is just one of many efforts out there right now to make sure that whatever truth Bill Barr is able to find about this Department of Justice uh Sham. I mean, it's really wrong what has gone on here. It's it's a massive political scandal, and we should be getting answers. And there have been some of these probes. And keep in mind that the initial the initial impetus here for the investigation of Donald Trump by the Department of Justice was driven by people that we now know to be partisans, that we know to be deep state operatives who were working behind the scenes and abusing their power and discretion for political ends. Comey, Barr. I'm sorry, Comey, McCabe. Uh, struck page, go down the list. These are all individuals that we've seen through their text messages, through their actions once they've left government employee. We, we know who they really are now. We have a much better sense of what they're really all about. And it looks bad. All of it looks bad. It looks like these are people that really hated Trump, that hated what Trump represented more than anything else, which was a challenge to their sense of superiority. Right. Trump was not supposed to be able to do these things. And there were all these people who had built careers, had burrowed themselves into the existing power structure, especially in D.C. and especially in the Democrat corporate media. And Trump comes along and does not show them the deference that they demand, does not show them the respect that they think they're due. And they go completely apoplectic. I mean, they lose they lose it on him and try to find try to find ways to end his presidency and to take him down. Now you've got Attorney General Barr looking into this, and already they shift their narrative to Barr is doing the dirty work. Well, Mueller was able to find no Russia collusion, and then the Mueller team, a bunch of Democrat prosecutors, as we know, came up with this, well, here are 10 counts of possible obstruction. We can't say they're obstruction, though. Just as slimy and underhanded a lawyer's trick as you could ever conceive of. But they found nothing on the, the, the impetus for that, the, the initial reason for the whole investigation of Russia collusion. They got nothing. And it's worth asking, how did the top echelon of the federal government's bureaucratic apparatus under the Obama administration, what did Obama know, by the way, about this? We never get answers on that. They never tell us. We're never allowed to find that out. Oh, Sure. There was all this happening. There was the investigation of the Republican presidential campaign, and no one ever briefed Obama on it. No, of course not. Like, we're all supposed to be so stupid. Joe Scarborough here also does the usual, oh, Trump lied about the wiretap on Trump Tower. No, the lie was what was told to the FISA court to continue to get surveillance under FISA of Carter Page because he was a Trump campaign associate. Remember, they weren't surveilling Carter Page under FISA because they thought that Carter Page had access to classified and was trying to sell it to the Russians. That would be a standard espionage investigation. They were surveilling Carter Page under the theory that he was a go-between for the Russians and the Trump campaign. He was the centerpiece of collusion. That was the theory. A theory that 
an intelligent human being who speaks to Carter Page for five minutes would know is or, or, or five seconds, quite honestly, would know is, is absolutely absurd. Carter Page, who had helped the FBI with other intelligence related concerns when it comes to Russia. And now they're acting like they now they hid information about him to make him appear to be a traitor to the FISA court. All the malfeasance that's been done, the leak of top secret information to the Washington Post in order to entra- to entrap General Flynn, send over some FBI agents. Remember the Kizilyak Flynn phone call? Somebody with classified leaked that information. That's a felony. So when we look at what's going on here, there's all this bad action. We have, what, the 14 serious instances of FISA abuse, all these different things, all these different Areas that you can you can add together and say, well, hold on a second. There's more than just smoke. We've already seen fire. So shouldn't we find the source of it? And that's what the attorney general is trying to do. And this is why you're, you're already seeing the, the narrative come up now of people who don't want the truth about the plot to undo this presidency, which is what it was. It was a plot to undo the presidency, to use the Department of Justice and the lib corporate media as a bunch of mouthpieces to get rid of President Donald J. Trump. So they're now coming up with all these these explanations in advance of any facts. Oh, Barr is, is doing Trump's bidding. Barr is uh, a stooge for Donald Trump. As I've told you many times before, this just... This just flies in the face of basic facts. This guy's already been attorney general, longstanding career, well-respected by anybody who knows anything about the DOJ. Donald Trump has turned him? What, it's like Donald Trump is a vampire and he bit attorney general Barr and now he's a, you know, now, now he does whatever Count Dracula tells him to? This is insane. But this is what they have to do because they recognize that eventually more information is going to come out about how duplicitous, how false, how stupid, how incompetent, how dishonest the origins of this whole narrative that that gripped the country for years. The the primary news story for more than half of President Trump's first term in office was about a left-wing conspiracy theory bought and paid for, literally bought and paid for by the Hillary Clinton DNC in 2016. That was the primary news story in America for almost three years, really. And it still, in some ways, haunts the current administration because it gives the Trump deranged an excuse at any point in time for why they hate Trump. Because they still believe that there was collusion, even though there's been proof only to the contrary. So this is what gets us now to this 2,000 former Department of Justice officials who are calling on William Barr to resign. These are called Democrats, folks. This is not complicated. This is not hard. And the Department of Justice has about 100 and I think it's actually 120,000 employees if you add it all in. So to have 2,000 people who formerly worked at an organization that has over 100,000 people, um, that doesn't really mean anything. Who cares? These are Democrats. One of the great tricks that the media pulls is deciding whose voices get magnified as somehow worthy of public uh, public scrutiny, worthy of public attention, and whose don't. You know, if some group of 10 doctors comes together, I mean, there's you know hundreds of thousands of, of MDs in the country, right? If some group of 10 doctors comes together, all of a sudden you'll see headlines on ABC News, Donald Trump unfit for office, say doctors. 
Okay, well, there's 10 of them, you know, who, who cares? 2,000 former DOJ officials, who cares? This doesn't matter, but the media is running with it. They're running with it. It's propaganda, folks. This is shaping the, this is shaping the battlefield of ideas before any facts can come out about what Barr's investigation, really Durham's investigation, the U.S. attorney up in Connecticut, of the Russia collusion origins will be. Get ahead of it. Undermine it. Destroy it. Er er erase the credibility of anything that Barr is doing before we even know what he's done. That's their plan all along. There is zero proof of any kind that the attorney general changed his mind about Roger Stone because of what Donald Trump tweeted. And anyone who looked objectively at what they were doing to Roger Stone would say this is absurd. But you can't have a normal conversation. You can't have a rational conversation with a Democrat about this because they'll also tell you that it was normal. I'm, I've heard people go on. I mean, CNN is the worst offender. CNN is actually has actually become insane as an organization. I mean, they've completely lost their minds. They have no sense of balance, no sense of responsibility. It's really it's really frightening. I mean, it's, it's a grotesque place. Uh, but they'll put people on TV who are supposed to be law enforcement experts who will say, well, of course, of course, you know, 30 men or so with long guns had to go into Roger Stone's home at five o'clock in the morning to effect that arrest. Of course, that was necessary. I don't care what expertise someone claims to have or how many years in the job. That's an idiotic thing to say. Only a moron would say that with a straight face. But there are many of them out there. And in fact, they're paid to say that with a straight face. At every phase of this, what I tell you turns out to be true. Our analysis here in the Freedom Hut is correct. And the so-called legal and law enforcement and political experts, such as they are, that are going on on CNN and MSNBC and ABC and these other places, are wrong, wrong, wrong. They never change any of their analysis, though. And they just either lie to their audience or they move on. They ignore. They pretend it didn't happen. They're going to have to, at some point, confront the reality of the soft coup against the president of the United States that they engineered. And they're really just hoping that the American people don't see this before we have to cast ballots in the November uh, upcoming November election. That's that's really what is at issue here. And that's why when I see this 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 breaking news story about the uh, federal judges who are going to have a call. I mean, no, no one had even heard about. Well, let's be honest. Had anyone heard about the. Uh, you know, Federal Judges Association or, or whatever the whatever the heck they're calling this thing before today. No, but they're going to tell you that this is a really big deal. They're going to say that the fact that federal judges are, are expressing concern in this way. Um, here we go. The Federal Judges Association has called an emergency meeting. Oh, my gosh. After DOJ intervenes in the case of Trump ally Roger Stone, uh, DOJ doesn't intervene in this case. It's a DOJ case. The people who are prosecuting Stone are DOJ employees. They are subject to the chain of command, the rules and regulations of the DOJ, and they do have oversight, and there are, there are superiors that they answer to. And this ultimately comes down to, do people really think that it was justice to ask for seven to nine years for Roger Stone? Well, as we know, there were, one of the guys who was a prosecutor here was a former senior White House counsel to Obama. Does anyone think that that guy's not a huge dam, a huge lib? Come on. And then there's another one who prosecuted Papadopoulos. I mean, these, these people are all Trump collusion truthers. 
and they're getting a shot at Roger Stone, and we know they just want to run the scoreboard up. The more years associated uh, with anyone who's in Trump's orbit, the better. Because then they can run this graphic that, that, that I've seen before on MSNBC for stupid people of, look at all these prosecutions. Look at all the years they're getting in prison. Yeah, it's prosecutions for getting jammed up in the course of the sham Russia collusion investigation or people who didn't pay their taxes, which has nothing to do with Russia-Trump collusion whatsoever. But this is the old Democrat plan. Investigate, investigate, investigate. The process is... The punishment. Put people through hell, and even if you don't get what you want at the end, you've put them through hell. It sends a message to the political opposition. It tells Republicans, it tells the GOP, Trump supporters, we may not even win in the end, but we'll ruin you in the meantime. That is what we are up against in this election. It's also what Attorney General Barr is up against with these former DOJ employees and the corporate Democrat media and all the rest of it trying to band together against him to call for him to resign. I don't think so. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. And and in case you want to know just how unhinged things can really get with Democrats, uh, producer Nick just gave me this quote from Maxine Waters. Quote, Bill Barr should not only be disbarred, but he, Donald Trump and Roger Stone should be sharing a jail cell. End quote. Sitting member of Congress, folks, Democrat. I mean, you know, she she couldn't it would be hard to think of somebody who could come up with a dumber comment of any kind on the spot than this. Um, Maxine Maxine Waters is not somebody that I think anybody would turn to for legal analysis or really any analysis for that matter. Uh, But nonetheless, sitting member of Congress, Democrat, Trump, Stone and Barr should all be in prison. And they and they say that our side isn't nice. They say that our side isn't respectful. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 2,000 former Justice Department officials of both political parties calling on Attorney General Barr to resign. Do you join their calls for his resignation? Absolutely positive. This has been the the greatest abuse of power I have ever seen at the hands of this president who has no, no sense of decency or understanding of the Constitution. And Barr is facilitating it is beyond my comprehension. I've been around a long time, used to chair the Judiciary Committee for years. No president. No president, no president has ever intimidated a general attorney general into abusing power as much as this man has. Disgusting. The worst abuse of a president. I mean, did you hear the language he's using there? This is about how many years Roger Stone's going to go to federal prison for. For what, what exactly? For being disrespectful of a process that shouldn't have been going on anyway. So you see, Democrats get to they get to. You know, they get to sick the DOJ like a bunch of trained attack dogs. They get to use the special counsel. They get to use these different bureaucratic apparatusi or apparatus, apparati. I don't know. Apparatus, apparatuses. How about we go with that one? My, my, my uh, grammar school Latin is failing me here. Uh, but they get to use all these different institutions within the bureaucratic system as weapons against Trump. And then when it comes out that they're using those weapons against Trump and his associates and people around him improperly, unfairly, illicitly, oh, well, we shouldn't have been doing it in the first place, but you shouldn't have done what you did when we were investigating you. 
And that then brings me to one of my my favorite irony moments uh, in recent days. Although the irony in politics lately has been coming fast and furious. But one of my favorite irony moments is that uh, Andrew McCabe, the acting FBI director, who will face no federal criminal charges for what he has uh, done, uh, no federal criminal charges for lying under oath, because if you are a person that Democrats like and that the media favors, you and you come from within the the institution, the bureaucracy of the government, you know, the unelected fourth branch of government that are civil that are, quote, civil servants. But really, there are our overseers. There are bureaucratic overlords. If you come from that class, you get away with things. You get to lie. You don't have to play by the same rules that civilians do. I wonder how many times. McCabe sat in a room and had to look somebody in the eyes whose life he was ruining for a minor process crime, lying to the FBI, some you know financial impropriety where they could have just asked for restitution, but the FBI, the FBI, you know, one of the problems you have with the federal criminal justice system is that there's always this this pretense that we should treat white collar crimes as seriously as other crimes because of uh, of, of any demographic disparity and who's committing white-collar crimes versus violent crimes. And so there is a political pressure to more harshly prosecute sometimes white-collar criminals just to show that, yeah, that you know accounting fraud that you committed against the company that cost them you know $100,000, or it could be billions of dollars. I know these things can be vast. But you, you should go to prison for 10 years for that, man. But then we find out that people that walk up to someone on the street and slash their face with a razor blade, which just just here in New York uh, on Valentine's Day, right after a Valentine's Day date, uh, a, a French tourist was walking around Harlem and he was slashed across the neck. Just, I mean, to say no reason is obvious, right? Just he was just walking on the street. Someone saw him, French tourist visiting New York. You know, and that's the kind of thing that Europeans are going to remember for a long time. And they'll say, oh, look what happens in America and it's unsafe. And, you know, so there's a ripple effect to that, too, beyond the horrific act of you know, mutilating someone in that way. I mean, it's just disgusting. Right. I wonder how long that that individual, when they finally catch him, if they catch him, will get in prison. I bet you it's not nine years in federal. I mean, it's not a federal crime, but I bet you it's not nine years. Mm-mm. Not going to serve nine years. Roger Stone should serve nine years, though. This is this is the world that Democrats want us to live in now. People who are vicious and a threat to public safety and a menace, they, they you know, we got to talk about criminal justice reform and we have to get into, whoa, what's really going on here with mass incarceration? And, you know, anyone who commits a violent crime should be, in my mind, treated almost in a different sector of the justice system from nonviolent crimes. Right. Violence against human beings, you know, rape, assault, murder, uh, you know, assault with a deadly weapon and, and threats of, of imminent violence, you know, armed robbery. Those are the most serious crimes for good reason. And anyone of any background or ethnicity who commits any of those crimes should be treated with the utmost harshness. Lying under oath? Come on. Come on. Lying under oath about something. That, it's one thing lying under oath against a person who... You know, that, that that lie, let's say, is going to send someone else to prison or, you know, these things should be weighed. By, by the way, that that also is often not enforced the way that it should be. People that lie under oath when they make accusations, for example, uh, the Duke lacrosse case comes to mind. There are others. Uh, they, they are not punished as, se- as severely and they should be. 
But this was a lie. Who was the victim here? The, the government, the Mueller team, when Roger Stone didn't tell them the truth? I'm not saying he should get away with it. That's not even the conversation. No one's saying he's not guilty of, of this. And you, you have to have sanctions against people for this, but, but nine years in federal prison. Why not 50 years in federal prison? Why not 100? Because you realize that's crazy. But yet liberals make this argument that this is an egregious offense. Joe Biden is calling on the attorney general to resign over this. Let, let's just really unpack this for a second. The attorney general of the United States should resign, according to Libs right now, because Trump associate and longtime political advisor in general in the Republican Party, uh, Roger Stone, might end up serving two or three years in federal prison. The the sentencing is scheduled for Thursday, by the way. Two or three years in federal prison instead of five or six. Attorney General Barr must resign. I mean, who who thinks that this is a normal thing to, to think? This is an understandable position. But there's... There's no semblance of proportionality with the Democrats anymore. There's no rationality. They're, they've become deranged in the era of Trump. And this is insane. And it's, it's shameful, too, because it's starting to undermine faith that the rest of us have that we can get a fair trial. Right now, if you're a Trump associate in, in the District of Columbia uh, and you're being tried for something, you, you're not getting a fair trial. We know this. I don't think if somebody associated with Trump was tried in New York City— they would be getting a fair trial uh, either because the jury pool is so tainted because the media has done such a, a an astonishing job of propagandizing about how Trump is an imminent threat and everyone around him is so terrible and he's so awful. And Meanwhile, the country's doing better than it's done in my in my adult lifetime. The country's in better shape right now than it has been in my adult lifetime and probably in my lifetime period. The country is better now than at any point it's been in almost 40 years, speaking from my own personal experience. Do you get any sense of that from the media? Do you get any sense of that from the way they're reporting on things? No, of course not. Instead, they're doing uh, they're doing an impersonation. It's a bit like Ben Affleck when he is the best thing that Ben Affleck I think has ever done when he did an impersonation of Keith Olbermann on Saturday Night Live. Miss Precious Perfect, when the co-op board would not let my cat, Miss Precious Perfect, stay with me. You know this whole thing, and I and I. Complain to Mumsy, you, sir, should resign. And, you know, and Keith Olbermann yelling and you know, acting like he was a really bad. Keith Olbermann's whole shtick was staring into the camera and letting Libs believe that a guy who sounded like he was doing a bad impression of a person doing an impression of a Shakespeare actor. <laughs> Like it was a few levels removed, you know? This is what someone sounds like when they're trying to get the role of Hamlet. Keith Olbermann steps in. Uh, That that, that this was intellectual and this was worthwhile for anybody. I mean, also Keith Olbermann has a reputation for being among the worst human beings in the media of any political background. But the whole thing about you should resign. Everyone should resign, right? Everyone on on the right should resign. Anybody that libs don't like should resign, lose their job. Uh, this is what Democrats have been reduced to right now. And I I mentioned it at the top of the show. I just wanted to go back to it for a second. You think about the Department of Justice under the Obama administration and what was allowed to occur then. Um, The way that Attorney General Holder just made sure that there, there was no accountability at all. There was no effort to investigate. There was no oversight of the IRS targeting conservatives in an election year. 
Lois Lerner admitted this. They did this. This is real. There, there's no question that this happened. The only question was, how far did it go and who gave the order? They just made that go away. Eric Holder's like, whoa, I don't, we don't want to look into that. Operation Fast and Furious, even Democrats. Yes, you could say that voting to hold Eric Holder in contempt of Congress is a political act. Fine. But even Democrats, and I think it was a whole bunch of them, maybe about 17 of them in the House, went along with that and said, yeah, no, he is. This is this is contemptuous. He should not do this. The Obama administration was telling gun store owners to make illegal sales to individuals that they knew were going to then take those weapons and sell them to the drug cartel south of the border. And that resulted in the deaths of over 100 people and, and, and including the murder of Border Patrol agent Brian Terry. Do we ever find who, who gave the order for that investigation, mean, that uh, that operation? We don't know. Yeah, there were some low level people that were, oh, you know, their, their careers were derailed or something at in the ATF. And but no one ever found out. Don't you think that's the kind of thing that they would know in D.C. at the highest level that they're doing? It's very risky telling people to break firearms laws. It was really an effort to break federal firearms laws by the federal government so that then they'd have an excuse to enact much stricter firearms laws. See all this terrible violence going on with the drug cartels? It's because we don't have strict enough gun laws, even though they were breaking their gun laws in the first place to get those guns to the drug cartels on order of the government. We didn't get to find out what happened there. Eric Holder didn't want to get the answers. Loretta Lynch never recused herself in the Hillary Clinton email investigation. Just think about that. She never recused herself. And not only that, she didn't recuse herself after the tarmac meeting with Bill Clinton, which I know you could say the investigation didn't go on that much longer, but investigation could have been reopened. She didn't know. And it also would have at least sent a message like, yeah, I, I definitely shouldn't have done that. But we all know what was going on there. That was behind the scenes collusion by powerful Democrats. Of course it was. And yet they want to lecture us on the Justice Department. The Civil Rights Division under Eric Holder was effectively a bunch of community organizers and activists who ended up getting overturned by the courts numerous times. The Obama DOJ was an activist DOJ, especially the Civil Rights Division, which was far left and trying to enact a social justice agenda in violation of law under the guise of implementing the law. That's what we had for eight years under the Obama administration. And we're supposed to get lectures now about Attorney General Bill Barr? Please, Libs, just get ready for what's coming. Get ready for the report that Durham is going to put out. And then we'll watch as they, because they, they'll never admit that they were wrong, but we will watch some in the Democrat corporate apparatus, uh, media apparatus squirm as they try to justify the enormous hoax that was the Russia collusion investigation, all meant to help their incredibly weak, dishonest, corrupt candidate Hillary Clinton glide into the White House. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. So it's November. People who just what just won the election and the current occupant says, uh, no, this is all a hoax. The Senate agrees with them. Fox News starts going on about it. What does President-elect uh, Buttigieg do about this yeah. when he doesn't want to leave? So, uh, well, what I said to Bill Maher was it was going to be pretty awkward when Chaston and I are moving in our furniture. Uh, I mean, if he won't leave, I guess if he's willing to do chores, we could work something out. But What is this, this liberal mythology or this liberal fantasy that if Donald Trump doesn't, if Donald Trump lost the election, he, he wouldn't leave? 
this is this is amazing for a number of reasons. One, there's just no evidence that this is the case. There's no reason. There's no reasonable reason to believe this. But also, we're going through so much of what we are as a country right now. I mean, the political conversation has really been dominated by one thing, and that is Democrats' refusal to accept the 2016 election results. So Democrats refuse to accept the 2016 election results, spawning a special counsel investigation and countless conspiracy theories and all these removed Trump efforts and, quite honestly, the impeachment effort and the Senate trial that then acquitted President Trump. But they refuse to accept 2016, and then we... Have to hear from them. And also they refused to accept 2000 when Bush beat Gore. And, and now we are told that we should be concerned that Donald Trump is not going to accept the 2020 election results. You know, fool me once, as Bush said, can't can't get fooled again. What, what are they doing here? Why even go there? It's also meant to be an insult. I should note. And this is another this is a common tactic you have against the, the truly Trump deranged Democrats. It's a way of of undermining Trump supporters. It's a way of of attacking us without having the the stomach to actually say what they want to say. So they'll make claims that they know are only possible. They know could only be true if Trump supporters were willing to go along with it. So what I'm saying here is when they claim that Donald Trump could do something really horrific, right, or, or Donald Trump could just declare martial law, which I've heard libs say, or, you know, or that he's a dictator. I mean, if he's a dictator, he's the worst dictator ever because all he does is go to court and obey the rule of law, including when there are lawless judges trying to overrule him at the national level with these universal injunctions. But we all know that he couldn't do the things that libs are worried about him doing if his supporters all of a sudden decided that he had overstepped, that he was no longer in the, in the right and that he needed to be uh, removed from power, removed from office. So, uh, of, of course, if Trump loses the election, which would be a, it would just be a sad day for America, if that were to happen, though, those of us who had voted for him would say, yeah, he's got to go. And if he just pretended that he wasn't going to go, then that would be a problem. But even in, tr in trying to placate Lib's crazy fantasies, you almost give some degree of credibility to it. Like, we have to explain this to them. Like, yeah, guys, that's right. If Trump really was going to nuke Sweden tomorrow, we would stop him. I promise. We, we, we wouldn't be like, yeah, Trump, go for it. You know, you don't like Ikea anymore. Go ahead and fire off a bunch of ICBMs. Of course, but, but in having to even say this, it's like we give some credibility to the absurd assertion in the first place. And this is a game they play that with with Trump not leaving office. Of course, if he loses, he's going to leave office. And his supporters would insist because we we believe in the rule of law and we believe that you have to obey the rules that everyone agrees to. Only libs think the rules change depending on what they want. Only libs believe that nothing matters when they feel like there's something more important. And there's there's nothing that can obstruct them in their their will to power. So it's troubling. I, I just think this is a, a dumb thing that we have to keep hearing. What if Trump doesn't leave? Well, they should just think about what happens when Trump wins. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. But it is not only it is not only a rigged economy it is a corrupt political system
It is a system that allows billionaires like Trump to get massive amounts of campaign contributions from his billionaire friends. It is a system that allows a multi-billionaire, Mike Bloomberg, worth $60 billion. Now, Mr. Bloomberg, like anybody else, has a right to run for president. He does not have a right to buy the presidency. It is like somebody was writing a script and they were coming up with a way to make Bernie Sanders seem like he knew what he was talking about because he is looking like he's going to be running, in a sense, against two billionaires and a Biden. That sounds like the worst sitcom ever. Two billionaires and a Biden. Oh, hello, fellow billionaire. How is that poor fellow Mr. Biden doing today? Perhaps he can get some family members on the board of a corrupt Ukrainian gas company to help him pay some bills. Poor chap. You got these two two billionaires, Trump and Bloomberg. And let's be honest, Bloomberg is like an ultra billionaire. Trump is a billionaire, but he's not a he's not a 50 million. I'm sorry, a 50 million, 50 times over. He's not a 50 million billionaire. He's not a 50 times over uh, billionaire. That's that's special territory that Bloomberg is in. One of the wealthiest men in the world. And Bernie Sanders loves to talk about the, the billionaires and the oligarchs. And it turns out that there are some billionaire oligarchs who are quite powerful in this country. Uh, but we will get into which side they tend to be supporting, which I think is something that does not get nearly enough attention. Right. We will often be told that the Republican Party, and this is one of these enduring myths. I, I don't know how we can get rid of this other than to keep knocking down this lie. The lie is that the Republican Party is the party of the rich and Wall Street. Meanwhile, if you were to look at who, for example, and this is, you know, hat tip Ted Cruz on this one today, Senator Cruz, who pointed out that of the 10 richest men in America, seven of them, Buffett, Bezos, Gates, Zuckerberg, Bloomberg, Page, and Brin are Democrats, and they are funding Democrats to include today's Democrat socialists. And then Cruz wrote, not coincidentally, massive government power consistently preserves massive wealth and prevents new people from acquiring wealth. It is, in fact, the Democrat Party that has the uh, the majority of the ultra-wealthy supporting it. It is now the Democrat Party that has not one, but two billionaires running in its primary, Tom Steyer and Mike Bloomberg. I think Steyer's an interesting character just insofar as he's a reminder that you don't have to be you don't have to be wise and you don't have to be charming or even seem to be all really that good at anything to be a billionaire. You just have to be at the right place at the right time and be relentless. And you, too, can probably become a billionaire. Uh, better lucky than good, as I'm fond of saying. I've seen that play out in life far too many times in far too many ways. Better lucky than good. It's true in conservative media, too, by the way. Mostly uh, a lot of the people that you see who have done very well, media in general, but conservative media, uh, people that you know happen to be in the right place at the right time. Got very lucky. Got the platform. Got the opportunity. Um, because there's so much that goes into being successful that it's impossible for it just to be merit-based or just skill-based. you got to get a little lucky, too. But back to this Ted Cruz tweet, 10 richest men in America, seven of them are big Democrat donors. 
Buffett, Bezos, Gates, Zuckerberg, Bloomberg, Page, Bryn. Uh, this is a reminder that the the branding that the Republican Party has as the party of the elites and the rich is merely a, a, is is one dishonest. It's not true, but it's also a deflection from what the modern Democratic Party is. The Democratic Party does have a a plutocrat problem. It does have far too much. It does have billionaires who have far too much say in what's going to happen and what the future of that party will be. Here's a perfect example. Bloomberg, I, I keep trying to, you know, hammer this home for people because we've heard in the past, oh, someone's trying to buy their way into an election. And usually that meant they had raised a ton of money and they could spend a lot of money on a campaign. Bloomberg, this is an entirely different situation. I mean, I saw Stacey Abrams was standing up for Bloomberg recently. Stacey Abrams still pretends that she won an election she lost for the governor's race in Georgia. But she she had some nice words to say about about Michael Bloomberg, who is under a lot of criticism, a lot of pressure right now as a result of his support and implement his implementation of uh, stop and frisk policies. But Abrams, as I understand it, you know, has re- received uh, Bloomberg money in the past. You know, in her in her bid to be governor of Georgia, I mean, think of all the different mayors, for example, that have gotten a lot of support. Bloomberg funds this, you know, mayors against illegal guns or whatever it's called, the Bloomberg anti-gun project. Bloomberg's war on the Second Amendment is what it really is, but he has more or less unlimited funds with which to uh, to run that organization or to have people running that organization in his name. I think of all the mayors, all the politicians, the Democrat side, that that group has helped by pushing you know, by pushing their candidacy and by attacking their opponents just on the issue of guns. You know, it's possible to buy people off at the and buy them off in numbers that it will matter, because I'm not saying that Bloomberg and you know, technically you can't do this. He's going to walk around having people hand everybody a hundred dollar bill, vote for Bloomberg, although. I'd want to see what the numbers. If you were only going to remember, I think it was ninety thousand votes total that separated uh, Trump from Hillary in a handful of states in the Midwest, right? Wasn't that the? Uh, the there were there were somewhere ninety thousand votes was the was the difference maker, um, about roughly, call it roughly ninety thousand votes. You know, it's not that hard to pay off ninety thousand people, <laughs> right? If you've got billions and billions of dollars. But he's not going to pay off individual voters. What he does is pay off influencers, pay off powerful voices. Uh, and there are so many ways that that can be done. And now we are starting to see, is it possible to corrupt the political system in this way? Or rather, is it possible to just write a big enough check that you can be president, you can become president of the United States? Now, I don't think anybody could do this. I think Bloomberg is an effective manager and notice how I, I'm not as like I'm, I'm not as, as quick to do what I've seen a lot of conservatives doing lately, which is just trash everything about Bloomberg because they view him as a as a threat to Trump already. I, I'm not I'm not convinced that that's really the case. And I also don't think that we should do what Democrats do, which is pretend that things that they don't pretend that things about their political opponents are true that aren't. Just because it's it's you know the orange man bad approach. I'm not going to orange man bad, Mike Bloomberg. Libs do that to Trump. I'm not going to do that to Bloomberg. Bloomberg is very bad on a number of issues, but he's not dumb and he's not incompetent, and he did do a pretty darn good job running a crazy liberal city. All right, he's not. 
the governor of San Francisco, I mean, the governor, gosh, the, uh, the mayor of San Francisco today. He's not Bill de Blasio. He's not, I think it's Garcetti in Los Angeles. I mean, these guys are doing a terrible job. So let's be honest about where the criticism should be. Do I think that Bloomberg would be as good a president as Trump? No, not even close. He's horrible on a whole host of issues. And will I be absolutely as hard charging for Trump's reelection if it's Bloomberg versus you know versus Trump as opposed to any other candidate? Sure. But Bernie Sanders is an existential threat to the economy. All right, let's keep it real. Bernie Sanders wants to do things that no sane person wants to do when it comes to economics, when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to college, when all these things. Bloomberg is is actually more of what you'd expect to be an establishment Democrat platform, which is bad. But we could recover from it. You know, we, we, we could actually have a Congress that holds them in check. And I just think it's fascinating to watch this whole thing play out, because now the Democrats who have been talking about how Republicans buy elections and all the money in politics, and it looks like they might be saved from themselves by a an ultra billionaire who is doing more to buy an election than any human being in the history of this country, who's throwing around money. Personal money. Remember, this is personal money. He's not raising any money. He's just writing checks. Just writing checks. He's throwing on money in a way that nobody's ever seen before. And it is amazing. Oh, but speaking of the Mayor de Blasio, Mayor de Blasio, who, of course, supported his fellow commie, Bernie Sanders. De Blasio is a Sandinista-style commie, whereas Bernie is a more old Soviet. You know, Bernie is, he's a purist. He's a Soviet Union-style communist, as we know from where he spent his honeymoon. Uh, but here is what the current mayor of New York says about Bloomberg. Play nine. It's important for people to understand what's happening here. Uh, Bernie Sanders has creating extraordinary momentum on the ground, energy, excitement, because he represents change. He's been consistent about it throughout his life. Michael Bloomberg represents the status quo. And it's important to talk about it. He is using an inordinate amount of money. We've never seen anything like it in the history of the United States. But what it is masking is a lifetime of supporting those in power. He is the epitome of the power structure in this country. And it's important for people to start understanding what he's really about, given that he's spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars to portray only one side of the story. I think it's fascinating because you have de Blasio here saying this about Bloomberg. And we know New York City is, and I speak from experience, I'm on the subway four times a day here in New York City. I mean, I'm... I'm out there seeing the city, you know, up close and personal all the time. I live right in the middle of Manhattan. I work in downtown Manhattan. I'm constantly on the move. And de Blasio is destroying this place. And he's destroying this city because of social justice policies. And and this is the the separation that I want to, uh, and de Blasio on, on criminal justice reform, on a whole host of issues. But Bloomberg offers you Sweden more or less. I mean, this is a rough approximation. But Bloomberg is saying, hey, you know, you're going to have nanny state, big government, higher taxes, but there's still going to be a, a private economy that works, and we're going to have the trains run on time, and the streets will be relatively clean, and you got somebody that is not a, a, a just a crazy ideologue in charge. That's what he offers. That's not good, but it's not Venezuela, which is what Bernie Sanders and de Blasio offer you, which is the rapid social and economic deterioration that comes from instituting more radical Marxist policies, more purely redistributive and social justice based 
laws and regulations that are meant to promote radical equality in a society. Right? Radical equality leads to ruination because we are not, in fact, when it comes to our talents, gifts, ability, hard work, etc., we are not equal in those regards. We're equal as human beings and human dignity and in the eyes of the law, but we're not all the same in terms of how much stuff we're going to have and how good we are at things and the choices we're going to make and everything else. The socialists have a false promise to people that those, because really the, the, the ultimate promise of socialists like Sanders is rooted in envy. They won't talk about it this way. They'll just say the other guys are so bad because they're greedy and all this other stuff. But the impulse that they capitalize on is human envy, coveting thy neighbors fill in the blank. That's what Sanders does. That's what de Blasio does. These are people who rabble rouse, who, who go to the darker side of human emotion, who go to the recesses of the human brain that see other people that they think are doing. By the way, no one even really knows about how happy or or truly successful. I mean, I, I, I've known, I know plenty of stories personally of people that you'd look at and say, oh, wow, that person. Then you find out that they're struggling with some chronic illness, can barely get out of bed in the morning and are thinking about ending it all. And I mean, I really mean that. People that you'd see are really successful and wealthy and attractive. You know, you don't know. But socialist Marxists, they don't they look at this just from a a very sterile uh, lens of if you have more than me, that's a problem. If you're better off than me, that's a problem. It's never did I make choices? Could I make different choices? Can we both be happy? Can we both be prosperous in society without no that that's not the way that it's viewed. It's always that there's the the evil that exists is the fact that the, the Sanders supporter, the socialist looks at what other people have and says, that's not fair. I should have that too, or nobody should have that, which is what it turns into. Uh, you know, nobody should have what that person has. And then eventually this and this is this is true. This is the the socialist cycle. That plays out. It's played out in, in societies all over the world. And eventually the class that implements that that radical equality or that that effort at radical equality elevates itself and becomes what uh, Gilas, uh, Milo Gilas calls, he's an ex-communist, the new class, which is a very worthwhile book, by the way, if you ever care to read it, about the elevation of the bureaucratic elite within communist societies that are supposed to be so equal until you realize the people in charge of making things equal, they're not equal. They're above. And what Ted Cruz was pointing out in his tweet is that the ultra-rich in a society like that, they want the elevation of that bureaucratic class to keep everybody else in check, but the ultra-rich always find a way to stay ultra-rich. It's the middle class, it's the strivers, it's the builders, it's the people that want to be better off. They're the ones that are crushed down. They're the ones that Bernie Sanders is going to make life miserable for. But the ultra-rich and the ultra-dependent, they, they think they'll do great in a socialist America. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Number one, one of the things that uh, this is, we knew the most difficult when they did all the, all the, all the, all the, the cross-tab stuff. One of the four most difficult states for me to win was going to be in Iowa because and they're good people. It's all white. It's all Midwestern. It's a lot of it farming. And uh, it's uh, and, and it was going to be. It was gonna, but it, we did OK if you take a look at what happened there. I mean, it was kind of a unusual thing that I hope doesn't happen here. In terms of, 
No, no, I mean in terms of the actual running of the caucus, how it how it worked out. It really is time for Joe Biden to spend time on the pier feeding seagulls with a nice comfy blanket across his lap. It's it's amazing that he's still it seems that he's the only person who really believes that he's going to be president of the United States still. I think that he would get crushed in a general election against now when you say crushed, there are states that are going to go Democrats. I mean, you're really only talking about a, a difference in the electoral college that will result from a difference of a few hundred thousand votes in total. That's how that's how separate that's how polarized the country is. But I think that Joe Biden doesn't flip those votes toward him. And I think that the Democrats are realizing that this game they're willing to play all along, that Joe Biden was something other than what he is, which is a deeply, uh, deeply unimpressive politician, always has been, always will be, is coming back to bite them. And that's where Bloomberg saw his opening. And it's also why Bernie Sanders is, at least technically right now, the front runner. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know what he can do either, but I think the challenge is that we can't just settle for a speech or a tour of speeches asking for forgiveness. Right. There ought to be some effort on his path, on his part, rather, to say, and therefore I want to try and repair the damages done by this, some mm-hmm. kind of criminal justice initiative, some kind of effort for those that were scarred. Stop and Frisk is being raised as the primary uh, objection of the left to vice pre- I mean to a presidential contender Mike Bloomberg Stop and Frisk which is a, is an interesting issue and I, I've said before I, I think that there's a lot that you can dis- there's a lot of discussion around whether Stop and Frisk is worth it or not the numbers would say based on when they ended Stop and Frisk that at least in the immediate term, there was not a major spike in crime or homicides or shootings. Uh, but then people might also come back and say, OK, but these things take time. And with that change in perception among the very small percentage of people who are m- committing most of the serious crimes, almost all of the serious crimes in any neighborhood, including uh, minority predominant neighborhoods here in New York City, that once they believe they have greater freedom, that, that that criminal element within the broader society has greater freedom of movement, uh, greater freedom of, of action, then over time that results in more crime. And it, it, look, it's a it is a broad, broad based criminal justice philosophical discussion. But I do think it's fascinating that. This is the way that they're going after Bloomberg, as well as bringing up all of his old comments. But the thing about the old comments uh, is that Democrats don't care. They really that they don't really care about. And I'll tell you this, too. If they believe this is going to be such a test of of what the the principles of the left, if there are any, uh, what those principles are, because if they believe that the only way if the left, the Democratic Party believes the only way they can stop Trump is to get on board with a former Republican liberal billionaire from New York City who has issues like stop and frisk in his past as mayor, as well as saying, I mean, he said he said stuff about women that 
you know, is would be a problem for a lot of candidates. Uh, I mean, you know, Trump obviously with the, I, please, you don't have to tell me. All we ever hear about is Trump's crass with women and Trump did this and the Billy Bush tape. And I, please, I, I know all about that. I'm just saying they would raise this. Just because Trump uh, has gotten attacked, and it doesn't mean other people wouldn't get attacked on on those issues. Uh, but they they really, I think, are, be, are will be willing to forget all about all this. I think they're willing to put it all aside if it means that they have their best shot to defeat defeat Donald Trump. Um, I also think it's interesting that that Bloomberg doesn't really have a home in the uh, in the Democratic Party today, based on what he thinks he can accomplish or what, what he would want to do that would make people have a better life, whatever. I mean, here is part of Bloomberg's I, – I, what I'm trying to illustrate here, and these are the, the, new, the nuances of Bloombergism, is that the Democratic Party has ceased to be first and foremost about what it used to pretend to be, which was helping working class people – poor people and minorities have better lives. Now the Democratic Party has really morphed into an ideologically based uh, activist group that seeks to destroy political rivals and then wants to foist a far left socialist agenda on all of us. That's a different thing than, you know, hey, I I, want to you know, have better schools and have a little more funding for it. I mean, that that that, that was an incremental socialism. They, they've largely abandoned that incremental socialism, which can, at least in the short term, look like it's trying to address real problems and bring in a revolutionary new version of American society under this umbrella of socialism. So this is a monumental shift within the Democratic Party. And so they're not speaking about things in the way that you've heard them in the past, whether they meant it or not. Here is a problem. How do I solve it? You know, kids aren't doing well enough in public schools. Let's put more money into public schools. Now, that doesn't solve the problem and they're wrong. But the point is, A can go to B. Now it's kids aren't doing well enough in public schools. And let's turn the public schools into the only school system that anybody can go to because we're going to make it so hard to actually raise any money for uh, raise any money, go to private school for yourself or to, to send anyone to charter schools. And oh, by the way, these schools are going to be indoctrination factories for the little socialists of the future, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I mean, it's just it's a different a different tone, you could say, in the Democrats today. And, you know, here's, for example, what Bloomberg says about his political goals. Uh, play 13. I've been working on these issues of racial equality for years. And in the White House, I will bring together a diverse team to double down on that work. Everything we've ever tried to do in public life comes from one motivation. I've always worked to help people live the longest, healthiest, most fulfilling lives they possibly can, to make the real promise of freedom and equality for everyone in our country, and to help make the world a better place for our kids, our grandkids, our neighbors, and our communities. That's not what Democrat base voters really want to hear these days. No, that's that sounds a little that sounds way too old school politician. Want to help people lead longer, healthier, more fulfilling lives and enacting policy that will accomplish those goals. No, no, no. It's not accomplishing goals. It's what feels good. What feels good to Democrats today is saying that there are 37 genders, that there is no such thing as uh, there's no such thing as biological uh, the biological determinism of sex, it doesn't really matter. What feels good today is 
to reject the history of socialism destroying economies and pretend that it's never really been tried properly and we'll do it better now uh, to tell people, I mean, just just go down the list of what gets the le- climate change is an existential threat to the whole world. And no one really is going to change their lifestyle, but through government policy that ruins the economy will save the world, even though the U.S. is 12 percent of overall CO2 emissions. We'll get into some of the climate change craziness in a few moments. Bloomberg doesn't really have a a home in that political party. Bloomberg is not somebody who they can look to as, but they'll, if they got no choice, if it's Bloomberg or Trump, will the Bernie bros go along? I mean, he's certainly trying to do what he can to blunt the attacks on him regarding racism and some of the comments he's made in the past. I mean, here, here's a Bloomberg pitch that you would think voters that view politics as a transactional exercise of what are you going to do for me? You'd think that this might have some resonance, but in today's Democratic Party, I do not think it will at all. Play 12. And we're going to triple the wealth of black families to substantially close the racial wealth gap. Together, let me tell you, we will get it done. I know how to do it. We did it in New York City. We can do it here. Part of our work will involve helping more black Americans get on track to a successful career. And that means we will triple funding for historically black colleges and universities like Alabama State, which I visited last weekend, and Texas Southern just down the road here in Houston. Go Tigers. What do you mean, boo? Go Tigers. Does anyone think that that's really going to work for Bloomberg? I, I don't know. I, I doubt it. I doubt it. Bloomberg's not woke. And y- you have to at least uh, talk the talk when it comes to being woke to be a Democrat in good standing, at least a, a Democrat in good standing with the media, with the left. Uh, so I, I don't know if any of that will work, but I just think it's so interesting that he's he's going around saying, hey, I want to make Democrat and just Americans, but I want I want people's lives better through the following initiatives, let's say. And Bernie Sanders is just promising, you know, fairy tales and nonsense. And somehow Bernie Sanders, according to uh, the Bernie bros, is the one that's really going to say you know, that's really going to do the most good for people. It, it's it's crazy. But this is where we are. And I think this is how you're going to see this continue to, to play out going forward. So. Uh, the Bloomberg Factor. He's on the debate. Oh, I didn't even mention he's on the debate stage tomorrow. He's going to be on the debate stage. Mini Mike is going to be up there. It's like, uh, do I really have to explain to the fellow Democrats who are kind of dumb and very, very poor? Even Tom Steyer. Tom, you're like a baby billionaire. You're not even like a real billionaire. You're like barely a billionaire. Look at that tie. It's absurd. You know, that's... That's what you're going to expect from Bloomberg on the debate stage. There's no way he's going to light it up. He's like, no, we can't have Medicare for all. That's crazy. It's not going to work. Why are people here so stupid on this stage? Why do you not under? Okay, Klobuchar, you're not an insane person, but you're like, you know, you remind me of like every soccer mom I've ever met. I'm sorry. Was that a little sexist? Well, I'm Mike Bloomberg. I say sexist things. Like this is. This is what you're going to get from Bloomberg on the debate stage. It's not going to be anything that is mind-blowing. Uh, will it really move the numbers? Who knows? But I got to tell you this. Biden better Biden better be number one or number two in Nevada, or, or else he's done unless he clearly wins South Carolina. There's no. There, I don't even know if he—I mean, I guess he makes it Super Tuesday because he's got the money, but— 
He's he's donezo. This is a big one. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Now, Donald Trump, he thinks that climate change is a hoax. Well, I think Donald Trump is a hoax. Oh, man. Feel the burn. I think that Donald Trump is a hoax. Oh, snap. You know, do you remember Producer uh, producer Mark back? Oh, no, you wouldn't remember because you were like not even a fetus yet. I remember when I was growing up, there was a time... When when you would say something like that, everyone would go, "Oh man, ooh, that's cold." Do you remember? Yeah, like in school, everyone would go, "Oh, like yeah." But like that's cold, you know. Uh, that, I don't know about that's cold. That's what everyone would say. You're old. That's what I'm saying. There was a time when you'd say that's cold. There was a time when, in the common vernacular, people would say, "Oh man, that's fat." P H A T. You missed that, I think. Yeah, that I was, just got called fat. No, no. F A T. Yeah, but P H A T meant that something was was cool or hip. And it turns out if you ever call something hip, you are not being cool. I've since found out. Uh, also, now I've I've been I've been chided once or twice for saying saying lit, and then two letters after it because apparently those two letters are naughty. Lit, a. Oh yes. Yes, you're not spied. This is a thing. But also, if I say lit, now I'm like the guy that's walking around in dad jeans and New Balance sneakers. Referring to things. Nope, I'm wearing. No, you're not today. Duck shoes. I, I do looked. have. I do have the dad New Balance sneakers. Yeah, I wear, wear them, them often. I gotta yeah. have kids just so I can dress like a dad yeah. all the time. I only it's, wear New Balances though, so they're very comfortable. Yeah. They're very, very comfortable. Uh, you gotta have comfortable feet if you're gonna be a radio host. This is a true yeah, thing. You have to walk around the city, go to the yeah, subway. Yeah, you gotta and move stuff. all over yeah. the place. You gotta sit here and do your thing. But anyway, so so Bernie is. Oh man, he's got that sick burn. See what I did there. Sick burn against Trump calling him a hoax. On the climate change thing, I, I, I'm I'm never going to let this go. Bill Nye, the so-called science guy, has an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering. That's it. Doesn't have a PhD. Doesn't have an MD. The science guy is as much of a science expert as anybody that has an undergraduate degree in a in a math or science field. Which is fine, but not only that impressive. But he goes on TV, and because he has a bow tie, and people know him as the science guy because he used to play with beakers and, I know, syringes and whatever else, I don't know, whatever the stuff is he used to do in high school biology class. He goes on TV, and he's attacking EPA chief of staff uh, for her, well, here I'll, I'll let him make his own stupid comments. Play clip eight, please. The other thing that I find striking about um, she and her husband, uh, Ms. Gunasakara, is they have two kids. They have two young kids. And they're going to inherit this earth. And they're going to have to uh, interact with their parents when their parents have been strong advocates of putting more carbon dioxide in the earth. And they, what they do, uh, very uh, common in the environment, the people that they have hired the Environmental Protection Agency of late, including Mr. Wheeler, is uh, confuse or try to blur the idea that carbon dioxide, although not a traditional pollutant, is a problem. Carbon dioxide is the problem. Yes, methane's a problem. Some other greenhouse gases are the problem. But because there is so much carbon dioxide, it is the main thing that we need to address. I promise you. There is no there is no future in which normal kids will grow up and say, Mom, Dad, 
why didn't you stop all the CO2 from happening? But this is what the science guy is going on TV saying, that an EPA, a senior EPA official is going to have to deal with the, you know, her kids one day looking at her saying, how could you not have done more to stop all the CO2 in the air? America is only, as I've said, I think it's 12% now of CO2, of global CO2 emissions. Put aside for a moment whether or not uh, the whole climate change catastrophism is real based on the science. I tell you it's not, and I just point to them being wrong. All the, They're just wrong all the time. They just keep being wrong, keep being wrong, keep being wrong. But it's kind of like Democrats about Trump. They, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, but no, nothing ever changes. And I can't admit that they're wrong. I can't admit that they're really not that smart, not that clever, and certainly not wise. That's way that's way too uh, way too much at this point. So that's why you have this you have the same thing with the climate catastrophists. They'll keep saying, "Oh, but how, how you know, this time around we've got the 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 all the scientists agree with us." Well, but what about this scientist? He doesn't agree. Oh, that person's paid off by the fossil fuel. It's oh, it's the same routine all the time. But Bill Nye is telling you that one day you'll have to stare at your kids and I just wonder if those kids will look at you and say, "How dare you?" <laughs> Uh, how dare you? Yeah, because you're responsible for all the CO2 in the world. This is how much how much dumber can a comment really be? And this is why, you know, I'm sorry, but I get I get annoyed every day that I have to throw out my go throw out my garbage at home, my apartment here in New York City. And I have to separate out all this different recycling now. It's such a waste of time. It's so dumb. It's not even good for the environment. It doesn't do anything. I, 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 I'm never going to let this go. We are we are ruled by idiots when it comes to climate change, environmentalism. And because of that, we care less about things. We spend less time on real issues that affect the environment. You know, we spend less time in what is really in our water and some of these urban cities. As we know, we got problems when it comes to clean drinking water, but we, we don't focus on that. And also what's in the air? Never mind CO2. How about like coronavirus particles? You know, there's stuff to be really concerned about and where dollars that are going to the scientific community should be focused. But instead of focusing on that, what do we have? Oh, climate change. Bill Nye. Bill Nye wears a bow tie, so clearly he must be really smart. Clearly he must know a lot of things. Uh, and that's, you know, what he learned from his undergrad degree in engineering. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Team, I have some breaking news here, courtesy of ABC. President Trump is expected to commute the sentence of former Illinois governor Rod Blagojevich via multiple senior sources. Um, they'll have more on this. Look at that. President Trump may say that Blag may let Rod Blagojevich out. You remember, this is not a pardon. This would be a commutation, and a commutation just means that there's a lessening of the punishment attached to the sentence. It does not do anything to the actual guilty verdict or the sentence. And rights, your rights are not fully restored after a commutation. Um, I believe maybe maybe the president has the ability to do that too, if they spec if he specifies it. But you, you really just your sentence is ended. That's what tends to happen. All right, you've served ten years. You're out now, even though you had a twenty year sentence. Blagojevich has been in prison for eight years for, you know, interesting circumstances, exactly. Well, what was it? He was going to sell a Senate seat, they said. Talk about a quid pro quo. Um, but I thought this this is this is very interesting. Um, there doesn't seem to be any good explanation to me of why Blagojevich should still be in prison uh, much longer.
Uh, it doesn't seem to me, you know, I think the guy has suffered enough. This guy's got good hair, too. I'll put that out there. So it will, we might have more for you later in the day on this one. And uh, I think that that's, well, I might not. But we'll have more for you on this tomorrow if it actually ends up happening. Well, that, I wanted to talk to you about something that I, I just find interesting. Um, I thought about going into some detail here about the, the latest on all the coronavirus cases. And I just see right now. You're getting up to 70,000 confirmed cases. People are saying it is considerably more deadly than the flu. Uh, you know, it's really tough to know if this is going to spread well beyond China. I know there are cases outside of China right now or if this will be relatively contained. And I don't know how much I, I don't know how much the policy should change without knowing that there is a much a greatly enhanced risk parameter from where we already are. Uh, I think that, unfortunately, the, the media gets caught in this game of, well, informing people about the risks to the to the maximum degree. You're kind of covering yourself, and so that's good. But then also, by making the risk perhaps seem even greater than it is, there's a bit of an incentive for the media to do that because then they can get attention. And as we know, the media likes, media likes attention. Media likes people to watch their shows, click on their stuff, listen to them. So I do think that there's a little bit of a uh, of a of a of an incentive there that does not necessarily go in the in the public interest. Uh, so I don't have much for you on on coronavirus today. I did have something, some thoughts on a couple of issues of of science. Hashtag science. We were just talking about that before with uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, and Bernie Sanders, and people that really try to abuse science for political reasons, which is always troubling. And the scientific community is, I think, increasingly under pressure in a lot of ways to go along with cultural fads and and go along with political dictates instead of this is what it is. I mean, science, we like to think of science and math. We like to think of as areas where there are answers. There are truths. There's not my truth or our truth. There's just truth, which I would say that's the case no matter what field we're talking about. But certainly with math, right, four plus four. What does it equal again? Oh, yeah, that's right. Four plus four equals eight. There's only one answer to that question. That's not four plus four equals two million. And this is that very, very straightforward statement of there's a right and there's a wrong uh, extends. We'd like that to extend throughout science, but it's a lot more complicated than that. That brings me to some very interesting studies done out of the UK about how long term offenders, so people that have been criminal offenders stretching from uh, you know from childhood all the way into adulthood have different brain structures, observably physically different structures in their brain from people who are not long-term offenders. This has been a field of study that has been getting attention for a while, but there's always this this tension that I will get into in a moment about how far the science is allowed to go here. But here's just what the uh, this is a study done in the UK, and it's uh, you know they they've been they've been looking at whether you should be concerned if you have an adolescent, particularly we're talking about adolescent males here, because that's right, men we're we're never allowed to discuss men and women as different in some areas. Until it comes to things like criminality, where we realize that violent crime is is essentially overwhelmingly as a problem of of public policy. Violent crime is a male issue. 
meaning not that the victims are all male, but the people perpetrating violent crimes are over 90% male. All right, so men are the ones that engage in violent crime. Uh, not always, but over, you know, there are all these shows. People love to watch these shows about, uh, you know, like, you know, women, women who kill. And it's like they're always, they're always poisoning their husbands, too, which is really unsettling. Like that's not the way that I'd want to go, like slow poisoning or things like that. Or it gets violent when they get the the lover involved, you know, and he tries to be a part of the whole plot to you know get rid of the husband so they can get the life insurance money. So anyway, the the, the study that they that they're talking about here, this is in the Guardian, which is a left wing paper in the UK, looked at this and saw that if you are a teenage offender, essentially adolescent males can break the law. And it's unlikely, you know, it's clear that they are much less likely to be criminals into adulthood than people who are problems early on in childhood. Uh, Researchers say, quote, they find that adults with a long history of offenses show striking differences in brain structure compared with those who have stuck to the straight and narrow or who transgressed only as adolescents. These findings underscore prior research that really highlights that there are different types of young offenders. They are not all the same. They should not all be treated the same. It could well have just been that life course persistent group were choosing to lead their lives in a difficult way and could have chosen differently. I think what we see with this data is that they're actually operating under some handicap at the level of the brain, she said, adding that while such individuals may have committed serious crimes, the study suggested a level of compassion was needed. Think about what this would do. Now, the, the, by the way, this study only looked at white males, just which is interesting. They only that was the only uh, group that they were allowed to study in this way. And this is telling us what people who look at uh, at, at this particular part of science, uh, people who look at uh, neurology and and the functioning of the brain have been basically hinting at for a long time, which is that there are there are differences in brain structure that account for a whole bunch of things, including aggression, intelligence. How do you measure intelligence? Some people measure it as Q, and this then goes into people talk about IQ, and the which is obviously a different the, the acronyms don't line up, but the point is that there's measurable cognitive ability. And this gets into some very interesting public policy areas. You know, we somehow understand that we have different physical abilities, right? And this is something that I've talked to many of my friends about how when I was a kid, I thought, man, if I just if I just uh, trained hard enough, maybe I could be a world-class this or a world-class that athlete. I think the answer is, for most people, that's not true. There are some people that do have the physical ability and train that hard, and therefore, and they do become world-class athletes, but... You know, I, I was never going to be an all-star NBA player, no matter how many jump shots I practiced growing up. That was never going to happen. I just didn't have the physicality for it. It wasn't. So we understand that there's God-given gifts, God-given talents that are physical, that are that are actually something that you, uh, you know, you inherited from your parents, essentially. That that you've gotten lucky genetically in this way. But we all also want to we want we want to believe that brain structure that, that we all kind of start from the same basic you know basic slate 
that we're all we all have the same kind of brain. All of our brains have equal capacity. And it's just you know, how hard you study. That's uh, not true. That, that's not that doesn't make sense. That would be illogical and it's not scientific. And once you start getting into uh, different. No, that's not to say that you know everybody shouldn't read it. You know, this is just like everything else. You want to be the healthiest you can be. Some people are born and just naturally very healthy. Other people have health issues to overcome. But everyone wants to be as healthy as they can be. So it doesn't change uh, your approach to any of this. But when you look at brain structures and brain structures start to have associations with specific behaviors, notably violence and criminality, people get very uncomfortable even measuring this, looking into this. Now, some liberal researchers in this in the medical field here uh, are going to take away from this that, well, there's there should be greater. I mean, here, here's at the bottom, quote, it's true that these researches are consistent. Uh, research findings are consistent with the hypothesis that life course persistent antisocial behavior arises as a result of abnormal brain development. Um, but and then there's. Uh, then they get into how there should be greater compassion as a result of this. So there is a liberal mentality that says, well, if we can measure, let's say, violent anti when they say antisocial behaviors, they mean people that are that are causing problems for other people, often through violence or or threats of violence. So if we can measure violence as a function of brain structure, then it, then we start to ask the question, OK, should we do that? Do we do that? Do, do you start to look at this now when you have somebody at a young age who's, you know, been arrested a few times at a very young age and see if this is and what what do we do with that information? And do we start to collect that information in large enough numbers that you have aggregate data and then you start to, you know, this is this begins to get us toward very similar debates about IQ where now we are we're told that really IQ measuring is is a. Uh, out of style, to say the least. You know, to, to measure IQ is to start to traipse around in areas where we are told that that's not worth it and it's wrong and it's not exact and people will be judged based on this. There's a lot that we could know about the human brain and the, the functioning of the human brain and what it means for social policy, public policy, if we were willing to pursue these things and just get the answers. But the truth is there are a lot of reasons why we don't just want answers. There are political sensitivities to measuring and mapping out brain function that come into play very quickly. And some of this has been seen before in the, as I said, the IQ debate and and how that turns into I mean, just you can listen to it was fascinating um, to listen to a debate on a podcast between now I should now I don't want to ever give this guy a podcast shout out because he's horrible, but Ezra Klein and uh, Sam Harris, who's actually a neuroscientist. And they were talking about IQ and Klein effectively just wants to sit there and just say that Harris talking about IQ and, and aggregate population differentials in IQ is racist. And Harris is like, I'm an actual scientist and I understand the data and I've looked at this and I'm trying to have an adult conversation about what the implications are of the research of the science that we have. And Ezra Klein just sits there and kind of goes, yeah, 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 racist. And that's the sum total of where that conversation goes, and that's just discussing IQ and disparate IQ, uh, uh, disparate IQ levels among aggregate group, um, among groups in the aggregate, right? So you can imagine, and this also came up with 
uh, with the, the book The Bell Curve, where even raising the issue of, of IQ and IQ in the mean for different groups, meaning the average for different groups, was for all eternity, um, Charles Murray is branded by the left as a racist, even for it's one chapter in the book The Bell Curve. Once you start looking into brain structure and effect on on violence, everyone becomes everyone just becomes very tense about this. And you're going to continue to see this. There are just going to be areas where do we even want science to get us answers or would we as a society or, you know, would we just rather not know certain things? These are quite these are real questions. I mean, when, when they start looking at this, I mean, imagine if they could scan your kid's brain. And let you know at you know age eight, your kid has a propensity for violence. Would you want to know that? Would would you want to hear that? And what do we do about it? And then you get into do you, do you medicate preemptively to try to uh, address those brain structures? And there, there's a there's a lot here that once you start to open this up, you can see. I mean, it's fascinating. The human brain. There's so much that we don't know. It's such an amazing system. But it's also tissue at the same time. And once they're talking about measuring gray matter and the differential and and behavior from measurable gray matter, you know, thickness of gray matter in certain parts of the brain, fascinating stuff. Also, uh, very combustible stuff. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. And then in the same morning, I'm, I'm sitting there drinking my coffee, as I am known to do. And I see, and I'm thinking about the brain and, and human brain mapping and all the different implications of it. And I see this piece, the food that helps battle depression. The brain is not very well understood. It's, it's still something that, you know, we, we think that science really has figured this out. People just assume, oh, yeah, because we can... Hey, we can map the brain, but there's a lot about the brain that we don't understand. And there's also a lot of just about food that we don't understand. And I, I'm somebody, I, maybe it's a surprise for, for somebody who's in the conservative media space to be as interested in not, not al- alternative explanations of health phenomenon that l- currently lack explanation. You know, I mean, there, there are so many different conditions and medical issues you go in for. And you ask doctors, and they may have a way to treat it, and they might know what it is, but they don't really know what causes it. They don't really know how you got to this point. And when you get into uh, psychiatry and brain-body connection, people who work in the field will tell you that it's certainly there, and, and everyone knows this, right? I mean, you know, you get really bad news. You'll feel physical manifestations of that. Well, that... That clearly shows that the brain can control, you know, you feel it in your gut. You, know, you feel gut punch when you hear something really bad. Food is something that we all have this relationship with. with ah, we, we need it. We like it. I mean, I like it more than most. We need it. We like it. We know that it's it tastes well. it can taste good and can give us pleasure. We need it for sustenance. But it also plays much a much larger role in health than I think a lot of people generally think, right? It's just, oh, I eat enough food, I have enough calories, I'm getting enough food. Well, the different types of food can affect whether or not you're more susceptible to certain diseases. And, you know, there's all these promises made, oh, you know, drink like pomegranate juice, you'll never have, you know, it'll help with your heart. I mean, yeah, not really. That's not how it works. But overall, food choices really make a difference. And this 
food that helps battle depression piece I thought was very interesting. They're looking more and more into just can changes in diet affect the neurochemistry of the brain so that it's an effective treatment for people who, I mean, depression is, is, is in the brain. It is a real thing. Uh, people that have never dealt with mental illness or been around somebody who has mental illness, it can be tough for them to understand this. But th- there's a problem in the machine. It, it'd be like saying my computer has a virus, but that's not really a thing because the computer, I can still type the keys. It still comes on. It still has lights. Yeah, but the, the internal functioning of it, something has gone, has gone off, has gone wrong. Uh, food may be an alternative way to at least help with depression, and there's certainly no side effects to eating healthier food. And basically, the article says that something along the lines of the Mediterranean diet, which is just lots of fruits and vegetables, healthy oils and fats, nuts, and uh, you know, fish and lean proteins, basically. And they they say whole grains. I can't really have grain because of celiac disease. Uh, that might help with depression. And we're just in the early stages of understanding this too. So I mean, eat a cheeseburger, but. Also, maybe have a salad sometime, too, and see if it helps you feel a little bit better. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for Roll Call. Roll call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. If you want to email us, go to Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. Let's keep that roll call box full, my friends. We'll get through a lot of it. Uh, we got producer Mark actually. Now, he's the wrangler of roll call, so he makes sure that we get uh, printouts of it now and I get to more of it than I usually would. We've also ex- expanded our time because we don't, we're not taking uh, live calls these days. Uh, we do a lot of roll calls, so your voices can be heard here on the show. And there we there we have it. Um, let's get to it. Daniel Buck, love the show. I've been listening since your first Rush Limbaugh fill-in. I've always thought of you as almost a brother with all the office space, Big Trouble in Little China, and Die Hard references. That was until today. How have you not seen Band of Brothers? It is on par with, if not better, than Saving Private Ryan Finish watching Peaky Blinders and go back and watch Band of Brothers. Also, Bernie should hire Commie Bear as a campaign manager. Shields high, shields high, and never forget, it's all in the reflexes. Daniel, to be fair, I have seen a couple of episodes of Band of Brothers, and it is very, very, very good. So I, I, I have not seen all of it. I shouldn't have said I haven't seen it. I haven't seen all of it. I've seen a couple of episodes. I should go back and finish it. It's just, it's, it has been a while. Um... Yeah. Peaky Blinders season five. I'm actually in Narcos right now. Producer Mark, have you not seen Narcos? Did we already talk about this? You've not seen Narcos, right? I started it and it was kind of like boring to me at first. So I just stopped. Maybe I only saw the first episode or two. Adios mio. You need to go back and push through that, man. I'm telling you, it's that it's really good. When I have time. Do you know the real story of Pablo Escobar? Like, oh, yeah, of course. I've okay. looked into it. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, the stuff that happens, because they, they stay pretty... The first two seasons really just about Pablo Escobar, and then they expanded out to the overall drug trade with sure. the Cali Cartel and then Mexico. I, I think you would like that. Have you seen I The Wire? I probably would, too. Have you seen The Wire? Uh, I started that, too, and never finished it, but that was a long time ago. <sighs> the Wire was when I was a child. That's true. 
And but it does hold up from what I've heard. Yeah, it Everyone does. Everyone says it's the best I, show. I, I, would, I would recommend, yeah, I would say first Narcos because it's a little more current. But The Wire is a, a great show, too. Um, what is your favorite show of all time? Do you have one? I mean, where are we going? Genre, like comedy, you know. Uh, I mean. You can't put a sitcom up against the drama. Drama. Really. What well, favorite drama? Are you Breaking like a The Shield guy? Breaking oh, Bad. Oh, Breaking Bad? No, yeah. no, we agree on this. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Breaking it's the best Bad. show of all time. I think that's fair. Huh. I think it is the best show of all time. Hmm. For, for a drama. Do you, what's your favorite comedy? Seinfeld. Uh, we talked about this. Yeah. And I and like like a total savage, I prefer friends. Which, which I know is complete I know it's unacceptable. It's, it's unacceptable. It's unsophisticated. It's a bad no, take. I mean my wife Ever, would agree with you, but Yeah, but I mean yeah. I know. Yeah. So so there's that. Paul. Hey Buck, I am surprised I've never heard a steak aficionado like you mention tri tip. It's hard to find outside of the People's Republic of California, but properly done, it can hold its own against a porterhouse. Next time you're in L.A., find a good three to four pound one, find a friend with a grill, and follow Bobby Flay's grilling instructions, especially the resting time. Not only will it be reverse sear tender, but you can do cold sandwiches for a week after. Also got to say, um, uh, Shields High. Thank you. All right, cool. Um, yeah, man, I've never, have you ever had tri-tip? I've never heard of tri-tip. I've heard of it. I don't know if I've had it. Yeah, I mean, that's what I I, I've, never, I've never had it. I, I made last night for the first time ever a uh, red wine sauce, red wine pan sauce. Oh, you're for, really fancy. Yeah. Oh yeah. I made a red wine. I was I was home alone. I figured I got a little time. I'm, I had some leftover red wine. I had my parents over on Sunday. We had a beautiful meal. I actually cooked. So I, Sunday night I cooked. Uh, am I getting in trouble if I said that I ate veal? I feel like people are going to get mad at me. But I've had it. Right. It's delicious. I'm sorry that it's a baby cow, but it is delicious. Maybe I do need to listen to the anti-milk lobby. Uh, so anyway, I had veal piccata. So hopefully I'm not going to have PETA throw paint on me when I walk out of the studio today. But it was amazing, man. I mean, piccata is like when you do it right. That that butter sauce with those capers is out of this world. You get the fresh herbs. So I made that for the for mom and, for mom and dad. Had a great time. Uh, very, very lovely company. Uh, we, we had a, a whole group come together. And then I had some leftover stuff. And so last night I had a, a steak that I pulled out of the freezer and uh, made a little bit of a, I guess it's a Bordelaise sauce. It's really worth it. If you get a little bit of red wine and you, and you do that sauce properly, it's so easy. You just need shallots, red wine, uh, plenty of butter, a little bit of uh, fresh herbs, and you're good to go, man. I mean, you know, salt and pepper. I really think this YouTube page is going to work. On yeah, I, my, my mom has been saying that to me, too. Yeah. She's like, you really should just start doing, like, cooking and talking about this stuff. Like, so. is, your, is your apartment kitchen big enough to get cameras? Yeah, I've stuff? actually talked All to a friend right. of mine who's setting it up. I feel like we could do this. But right. what we do is I'd have you over, for example, and if we could get the camera set up, and I'd cook dinner, and we would talk about things as I'm cooking, and then we'd cut it up and make the show. And I'd have other people from the political world come in. Sure. And we'd, you know, and I'd make them dinner. Because I have a kind of a, an island, you know, island kitchen set up. Small, but it's there's an island. And so someone can sort of sit there at a stool while I'm, in, you know, making the stuff. And I turn around and anyway, it'd be kind of fun. It'd be like every other cooking show except you talk about politics. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's true. We talk about politics, crushing libs while crushing black peppers, all that good stuff. Bill, hey, Buck, it's not Hillary's choice whether or not she'll be Bloomberg's running mate. One thing I have learned about the Clintons is that they are always for sale. If Bloomberg believes she is the one, he can definitely afford to pay the price. As a side note, the... <laughs> okay, yeah, the memes will be hilarious. Thank you so much, Bill. I do appreciate that. 
And yeah, no, I, I th- that's we're in a different realm of buying people off when we're talking about Bloomberg money. Bloomberg is like, do what I want, I'll change your life money. That's a new thing. That's a different thing. Maureen, hey, Buck, as always, love your show, but I've been scared and perplexed by your insistence that you want Bernie to win the nomination. AOC backs Bernie, and if her guy wins the nomination, that will only empower and embolden her and her ilk even more, and their voices will be even more strident than they are already. Plus, there's always a chance he'd actually win. The Dems do cheat, you know. So then what for America? You scare me with this push. Please explain. Biden would be easier for Trump to beat. Also, why do you think Bloomberg will agree to one term? I've never heard him say that. And do you honestly think Clinton's ego will allow her to accept the number two spot? I sure don't. Other than those two rather bizarre things, I agree with you in every other way about what you think and share with all of us, which keeps us safe and warm at night. All right, Maureen. Thank you. Um, Wow, Maureen's she's fired up on these points. She's I don't want to let her down. Uh, okay, I want Bernie to win the nomination just because I want because I'm very confident that Trump would beat him in a general election, uh, and and I would I would bet I would bet a pretty large sum of money for me on that, and I know where to go to do that bet. So uh, I I feel very confident that Trump would beat Bernie, and I also think that the country should see what the Democratic Party really is, and that Bernie Sanders as the Democrat. Uh, nominee as a socialist would finally force us to deal with the fact that the Democratic Party is really a socialist party. As for Bloomberg agreeing to one term, that's not a I'm just hypothesizing there. That was completely that was me doing what I make fun of a lot of pundits for doing constantly. I try to do it less, which is just speculating, right? That he could do this. Hillary, he could ask Hillary. She could say yes. And Bloomberg could say he's going to do one term. But, you know, what it could have should have. I mean, I don't know if any of that stuff is going to happen. So uh, do I think Hillary's ego would let her? Yeah, I think Hillary would rather be vice president than be wandering around the woods drinking Chardonnay and thinking about yoga class. I think that she would rather be a vice president than that. I don't think that she has any interest in, you know, just being sort of like, a, you know, hanging out, being a grandma and all that. So, yeah. That's what I think about that. Ike, John Deere is high-tech information technology. Bloomberg and AOC are completely out of touch with where their food comes from. Well, Ike, I, I know, man, and it's, you know, it was not a strong moment for, for Bloomberg, even though his comments were a little, look, he's a smug, condescending jerk, but they were a little bit misrepresenting his comments and that whole thing. So, because he was really talking about agriculture through human history and, Agriculture in 1000 BC was not particularly sophisticated, right? It's a different thing now than it was then. Um, But you could argue it was sophisticated for its time because it was what was feeding people. Ernest, Buck, you mentioned Parasite on the show while your producer was talking about Train to Busan. Both are engaging and go far beyond the type of film they appear to be on the surface. Parasite was translated incredibly well, but what made it great were the constant plot twists blended with comedy. I felt it was an introspective movie making you ask yourself whose side you're on. Don't want to give it away. All right, Ernest, uh, I will I will check out Parasite for sure. Train to Busan, probably not, because I, I find that like really violent, scary movie stuff doesn't really sit well with me. Um, 
I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a scary movie guy. I know producer Brandon when he when he comes in here to hang out is all about it. You're not a. You're not a horror movie guy either, right? That's not. I'm not. No. Producer Mark is not. I a let horror Brandon movie guy. sit in the seat for three days, and this is what happens. Uh, every time, without what? fail, he brings up some horrific. Movie. Oh yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, you know. He's told me on movies, he's like, he's like, no, Buck, I don't think you should watch yeah, that yeah. movie. And I'm like, uh, whoa, okay. He's like, I've watched this. It's absolutely horrifying. Don't watch it. Yeah, no, he's in a, He told me that his girlfriend uh, likes Dave Matthews a lot and that that was almost a deal breaker, which is hilarious because I like Dave Matthews too. So hmm. I'm glad that he got past that. What's wrong with Dave Matthews? He hates Dave Matthews. Huh. He's, he's an interesting dude, man. He's yeah. got, you know, he's got a lot of tats. He loves Guns N' Roses, yep. and he loves horror movies. Like, that's kind of, you know, the, you put those things together. Every and person some, has their thing. You know, everyone's got their thing. I mean, I like to sit here and talk about making, uh, you know, red wine reductions. So, yeah. We've got, we got While I'm watching sports. Yeah. Uh, how is, by the way, how is producer Mark's healthy diet coming along? Uh, completely down the tube. Oh, yeah? Well, that's what happens when you're uh, laid up for a few days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want ice cream. Yeah, but in general, though, I mean, like, are I mean, you, you going to get back to it? You know, when I move in a couple of weeks, uh, I'll have a gym right right in the building. Be, you know, Producer it, Mark's going to be closer will. to the hut, which will be great. Because you know, then easy. Buck can show up to work whenever he wants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is going to be fair. We're all going to be in a good mood around here. I should have just fantastic. not told you that I was moving. No, no. This is uh. great. This is like early Christmas present for me now. But, yeah, I've been doing, I've been actually getting the gym more and doing deadlifts. And the problem I find is that when you do compound lifts, while they're very effective, I am, I'm an old man now. I'm tired the next, like the next day I'm actually fatigued. Sure. It's not really the day of, it's the next day that I'm actually, I'm tired. You're not supposed to lift back to back days. Well, no, I know, but I'm saying the next day I'm tired, like I don't want to do work. I don't want to do anything. I'm actually, I'm not tired like I'm sore. I I have no energy. Just get into a routine, then you won't be. I know. And do cardio in between. Or just drink enough coffee. I just can't be that guy. I can't be that guy who's on the elliptical. You You can't go to the gym and just be on the elliptical for a half hour, then go home? (sighs) The elliptical guy? Are you friends then. with the elliptical guy? I'm the elliptical guy sometimes. I like All it better right. than the treadmill. All right, fine. Producer Mark says it's okay to be an elliptical guy. I feel better now. Sarah writes, Buck, you are awesome. Sarah, you are very kind. On the coronavirus, have you listened to War Room Pandemic? They've been reporting on the coronavirus for almost three weeks. It seems to be pretty bad for China, maybe not as bad for the U.S., but I worry about how this will affect the economy. Keep being awesome. Um, yeah, the War Room guys, I mean, I, I, I've i met Steve Bannon once or twice. Uh, obviously, I know Raheem Kassam very well. He's a friend of mine, a great guy. Um, I have not heard their pandemic podcast, but I will uh, check it out. I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal for America, but it's obviously already a big deal in China. The guy who runs the hospital in, in Wuhan, uh, which is the center of this whole outbreak he's dead from the virus so that's troubling that's one part of being a healthcare provider that i've i used to think that i, I wouldn't be okay with being a doctor because i wouldn't want to see like the blood and the guts stuff but then i think about how someone comes in and they say oh and forget about coronavirus just in general if, if i was a nurse or a doctor um or, or a med, i don't know if it's a medical tech the person who comes in and takes your readings initially and, and and someone's breathing in their face who says that they think they have the flu. Like, don't they get the flu? I mean, aren't they really at risk for getting all these? I wouldn't like that. I'm a, little, I'm a tiny bit of a hypochondriac. Not that bad, but I definitely I do not like getting sick. Um, that's the most obvious statement ever. No one likes getting sick. Good job, Buck. Peter 
Watch Beetlejuice, both movie and Broadway show. The Broadway show takes from both the movie and the cartoon. It was amazing. Train to Busan was okay, better than most zombie movies. In my opinion, there are only two good zombie movies, Zombieland and Planet Terror. Zombies are frankly boring and ridiculous. Give me a good alien alien invasion or a vampire movie. Well, Peter, what's the best alien invasion movie? What's the best vampire movie, man? You can't leave us on the edge like that. And uh, I would say that my my favorite zombie movie is the I think it's the Romero directed um, where they're all stuck in the mall. Do you know what I'm talking about, producer Mark? That oh no, he does. Uh, Dawn of I think it's Dawn of the Dead, where Ving Rhames is in it and they're stuck in a mall. That's a very watchable zombie movie that I think is well executed. Twenty Eight Days Later is also a very good, very terrifying zombie movie. The, the whole innovation of that is what if the zombies could run really fast instead of going, I walk so slowly. I don't think they say that when they walk, but uh, I, I'm on radio, so otherwise I was just going to be doing a zombie thing with my hands. And unless you're watching us on Pluto, Pluto TV, uh, gosh, Pluto TV, channel 248, the first, you would not have seen my 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 zombie impression. Uh, yeah, zombies don't talk, Buck. Michael, Buck, you probably knew this was coming when you said none of us can build a computer. Well, who, what ex- who exactly did you mean? Seeing that I am a graduate student researcher in the electrical and computer engineering department, I am perfectly capable of building a computer. Just saying. Also, why am I not in the med- middle of reading a history book by the great author Buck Sexton? As always, shields high. Well, Michael, hopefully if we get stuck on the island after a three-hour tour, you'll be able to make the computer out of the coconuts. You know what I mean? You got to have a scientist. And I want, I mean, I'm Is a Mary Ann. Is this a Gilligan's oh, Island reference? I was, yeah. Mm. I was always a Mary Ann fan, too. Forget Ginger. Ginger's trouble. Ginger's high maintenance. Mary Ann was where it was at. Did he build a coconut, uh, a computer no, out of coconuts? Yeah, he would build he like a radio, a radio out of coconuts. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he yeah. would build things out of coconuts. I did not watch Gilligan's Island, yes, obviously. You were not, not even close to alive. Yeah. But I, I saw some of it. But you can tell me, you know, Ginger or Mary Ann. I feel like that tells you a lot about a guy. I'm a Mary Ann guy. All right. Ginger's trouble. Ginger's trouble. All right. That's going to be the show for today. If you can, check out uh, what I'm going to say on WOR, 710 AM here in New York City tonight, 6 p.m. Shields high.